0: Americans believe in democracy. The American experiment in democracy is at the heart of our Constitution and the foundation of our nation. To be an American is to be free. We must never allow our republic to be overthrown and replaced with a dictatorship. We must pass. The Freedom to Vote Act to protect our democracy. The Freedom to Vote Act is a bill everyone should support. It addresses election integrity and protects voting rights. It allows for voter ID and ensures that every citizen can get an ID. It sets minimum standards for accessibility to the ballot box and requires reliable audits of election results. It protects against election interference and prohibits voter intimidation. It provides money for new and upgraded election equipment and makes it a crime to harass or interfere with election workers. The compromise bill put forward by Senator Joe Manchin is strong on election integrity, and it protects voting rights. Both sides, Trump supporters and liberal Democrats, are worried about democracy in America. Republicans are concerned about election integrity, and progressives want to protect voting rights. The Freedom to Vote Act addresses both of these concerns. Everyone should support it. This is Rich Proceda, producer of Bible Study for Progressives. I've started a new podcast, Democracy Under Fire. It's a show that covers the threat to democracy and what people are doing about it i'm publishing it on this same channel on wednesdays but you can also watch the video on youtube just search for democracy under fire thank you for listening and for your support make sure to subscribe and share our podcast so we can get the word out to save democracy and the world Please enjoy this episode of Bible Study for Progressives. And remember to tune in on Wednesdays for Democracy Under Fire. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality and politics we engage scripture in its historical context plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance and apply its lessons to current events and social issues whether you're a liberal evangelical a new age spiritualist a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the Word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world.
1: We learned in the last two episodes that Jesus uses parables to reveal to some and hide from others the Secret of an Emerging New Society, a new society where everyone will have food because there is abundance for all, where crop yields will multiply as much as 100-fold. And we learn that this new society will sneak up nonviolently on the old society by infiltrating it like leaven that is hidden in dough until the dough has been thoroughly leavened. This third section begins with a parable that picks up on the theme of hiddenness, already introduced in the talk of secrets and in the parable of leaven that is hidden in dough and in the statement that the parables are revealing things hidden since the foundation of the world. To convey how wonderful a secret is being revealed, Jesus speaks of the new society as treasure hidden in a field. And as usual, nothing Jesus says is as simple as it seems. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 34 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with the parable of the treasure hidden in a field, Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Here we have another parable that the author of Matthew chose to include that is not present in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4. There is a parallel passage in Mark chapter 4, and this parable is not included in it. And there may be a good reason for this. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel written, and that it was written shortly before or shortly after the year 70. If you remember, I've mentioned several times that the year 70 was the year that Jerusalem was destroyed by Roman legions following a four-year peasant uprising. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of Matthew was written or achieved its final form 10 to 20 years later. So, a little bit of time had run on the clock by the time Matthew was completed. During that time, it had become common for treasure to be found buried in fields in Israel, especially around Jerusalem. This treasure had been buried there by wealthy Jerusalem families fleeing the war. Josephus writes of these treasures being discovered and dug up by the Romans. Writing around the same time as Matthew, in his work, The Judean War, he states, Of the vast wealth of the city, no small portion was still being discovered among the ruins. Much of this the Romans dug up. But the greater part they became possessed of through the information of prisoners. Gold and silver and other most precious articles, which the owners, in view of uncertain fortunes of war, had stored underground. There are also passages from the pseudepigraphal works of 2nd Baruch and 4th Baruch that speak of the temple treasures being stored in the ground. So Matthew includes this parable in which Jesus speaks of a common person, presumably a peasant albeit one with enough money to buy a field, a peasant finding some of this underground treasure. Normally, finding a treasure and keeping it secret and then buying the field from the owner without revealing the secret of the treasure would be a dishonorable thing to do. It would be acting like the conniving, greedy ruling class who behave in such ways. Also, this behavior flies in the face of Jesus' own teaching. Earlier in the story, he taught his disciples not to seek after treasures here on earth. But this parable compares the kingdom of heaven, the new society, to someone seeking treasure literally buried in the earth. But perhaps since it comes from the wealthy Jerusalem families and might be found by the Romans, there is a sense of justice, of wealth redistribution, which Jesus champions. But let's go on to the next parable, which is very similar, and we may get some clarity. This is verses 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here we have another parable comparing the new society to someone seeking earthly wealth. This time... The person is identified as a merchant. Merchants were not well regarded in ancient Israel. An earlier Israelite teacher named Jesus Ben Sirach said this about merchants. A merchant can hardly keep from wrongdoing, nor is a tradesman innocent of sin. That's Sirach 26.29. The Maccabean books speak of merchants waiting with bated breath for the Seleucid troops to destroy Jerusalem so they might profit from trade in Jewish slaves. The book of Revelation, roughly contemporary with Matthew, includes the demise of the merchant class in the final judgment on Rome and the kingdoms of this world. So the image of a merchant is not an honorable image. And the merchant is the quintessential pursuer of earthly wealth, the one whose whole life is oriented toward contradicting Jesus' teaching not to pursue earthly wealth. Yet, Jesus uses this man and his pursuit of wealth as an image of the new society. What are we to make of that? Jesus is again utilizing the Middle Eastern tradition Of extreme hyperbole. He is saying that the new society, built on shared wealth, built on love rather than money, the new society is such a wonderful secret that one must seek it as people normally seek after earthly wealth. It makes me think of the rock group U2 and Bono singing Hawk Moon 269 on the Rattle and Hum album. Bono describes his intense desire for someone's love using extreme images that might not be normally associated with a healthy love. He declares that he needs his lover's love like a preacher needs pain, like a needle needs a vein, and like someone to blame. We know that those things are literally not healthy, but we know that this is poetic hyperbole. In the same way, Jesus, who teaches against seeking after worldly wealth, uses images of people pursuing worldly wealth as images to accentuate how wonderful is the secret being revealed in these parables, the secret of the new society that is dawning. He then goes on to his final kingdom parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore and sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this final parable... Jesus compares the new society, the kingdom of heaven, to a fishing dragnet pulling fish of every kind out of the sea. Hearing this parable, the audience remembers that when Jesus called the first disciples, he told them that he would teach them to fish for people. Now, did he mean that he would make them movement organizers, gathering the lost of their society? Or was he using an image commonly found in the prophets, an image of punishment for the kings of the earth. For example, the prophet Ezekiel has God saying, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your channels stick to your scales. I will draw you up from your channels. So by saying that he would teach them to fish for people, Jesus promises that he will teach them either to gather in those oppressed by the empire or to prophetically assault and defeat the authorities of the empire. Given the way Matthew structures his gospel, I think that the author intends for his audience to understand fishing for people as a metaphor for gathering in the lost of the society. Ched Myers, commenting on this phrase in the Gospel of Mark, which was written before Matthew, believes that Mark is riffing off of the prophetic statements of punishment of kings and emperors. I think it is possible that Mark meant that, while Matthew changes the meaning to that of organizing and gathering in the people. And the original audience may have heard either meaning. At any rate, the image of fishing in the story is pregnant with meaning. And let's not forget the image of the sea. The sea is, literally the place that empires come from, See Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. And also, the sea was literally the place that recent empires crossed to get to Israel. And in addition to that, in the first century, the sea and all that was in it was claimed by the Roman emperor. So, fishing in the sea was like sharecropping on land. The fisher people had to give a certain percentage of their catch to the Roman authorities or their local proxies. This image of sea is rife with echoes of empire, specifically the Roman Empire. This chapter begins with Jesus sitting on a boat on the sea. This after, in an earlier passage, he has calmed and tamed the stormy imperial sea. Perhaps the image in this parable, then, is an image of peasant fisher people of the new society stealing the fish from the empire or rescuing people held hostage by the empire. Like the image in the last chapter of Jesus as a thief who breaks into the house and steals people held hostage by the empire, the one fishing in this parable steals the fish, or people, from the empire. But not all the fish are kept. Like the parable of the sower at the beginning of the chapter, Not everyone accepts the message of the new society or remains faithful to it. Like the parable of the wheat and the weeds in the middle of the chapter, the children of the new society and those of the old society are all mixed together and are only separated at the end. The audience is reminded once again that the new society is mixed in with the old. The kingdom of heaven is hidden among the kingdoms of this world. And so we finally get to the final parts of chapter 13, Matthew 13:51 to 53. This is Jesus speaking. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left that place. Jesus asks his disciples, have you understood all this? And they respond with, yes. This in contrast to the beginning and middle of the chapter when the disciples needed explanations. They needed the parables to be interpreted for them. This chapter has been one long training through parables and teaching about parables for the disciples. At the beginning and in the middle, they are still untrained. They need explanation. But at the end, they finally understand. They are trained. And Jesus proclaims them to be scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven or scribes trained for the new society. This in contrast to scribes trained for the old society. The similarity and contrasts between the scribes of the new society and the scribes of the old society is crucial to understanding what is being said here. The similarity between the two sets of scribes is that they both deal in deep wisdom and secrets of parables. Jesus Ben Sirach says this about the role of a scribe. He seeks out the wisdom of the ancients and is concerned with prophecies. He preserves the sayings of the famous and penetrates the subtleties of parables. He seeks out the hidden meanings of Proverbs and is at home with the obscurities of parables. That's Sirach 39, 1-3. That sounds just like how Jesus is training his disciples in this chapter. But the contrast is one of social and economic class. The scribes of the old society are from the upper classes. Or as Jesus Ben Sirach says, the leisure class. In the same passage from Sirach that he describes the role of scribes, he states that their role requires them to be men of leisure. Sirach thirty-eight twenty-four states, the wisdom of the scribe depends on the opportunity of leisure. Sirach then goes on to distinguish scribes from the working class that has to do hard physical labor and does not have the leisure time for scribal learning. The class distinction is the contrast. Jesus' disciples are peasants, but he has just trained them to be scribes for the new society. Meanwhile, the scribal class of the old society are among those from whom the secrets of Jesus' parables are hidden. Once again, this gospel proclaims a great reversal. As Jesus will soon teach, the first are made last and the last first. The peasants are the new scribes, and the old scribes lack understanding. So that would be a great way to end this section, wouldn't it? The great reversal has won. But Matthew continues. He tells us that Jesus left that place and goes to his hometown. Verses 54-58 to He came to his hometown and began to teach the people in their synagogue, so that they were astounded and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. After training his disciples through a series of seven kingdom parables to be scribes for the new society, Jesus is immediately rejected from his synagogue. He is, in a sense rejected as a scribe. And what is the reason given? Not the actual teaching. They are astonished at his wise teaching. The reason that they reject him is his social status, his family of birth. The people name his parents and his brothers, and also say they know his sisters. They know what family he comes from. He is no scribe, fit to teach in the synagogue. He is a mere peasant. From a peasant family. And so the passage has come full circle. The passage began at the end of chapter 12 when Jesus was informed that his mother and brothers were there to talk to him. Jesus took that opportunity to reframe who his real family is. He pointed to the crowd and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus is saying that in the new society, one is not defined by one's birth family. Then he goes on to tell parables in this chapter about the new society that is spread not by the seed of the fathers, but by the seed of the word of God, the teaching of the new society. He tells parables and teaches his disciples. But now, The synagogue rejects him, because they know his father, mother, sisters, and brothers. This ending reminds us of what the parables taught. There is victory in the dawning of the new society, but the new society is still emerging in the midst of the old, and many in the old society will reject it. So this passage ends in the rejection of Jesus and his message. It seems tragic, but think about who is writing all of this down for us so that we can read it. Think about who wrote it down so that it could be read to its original late first century audiences who were a mix of literate and illiterate people. Literacy was scarce in the ancient world, so most of the audience was likely illiterate, like the peasants in the story, and had to have this read to them. This text about the reversal of roles, the uneducated peasants become the wise scribes and the educated scribes are left on the outside not understanding the parables. This story was written down by a scribe, one trained by the scribal schools of the old society, a scribe who has defected from his social class. This writer, is able to see the fraud of his own privilege. And simultaneously, he is able to use his skill as a literate scribe and write a story that lifts up a peasant teacher and his disciples as the true wise ones. This scribe who can read and write writes out a story that proclaims that these peasants who don't have the skills that he has, who cannot read and write, that they are the wise ones. And those like himself, the educated scribes, they are the ones who don't understand. And so we have victory. Despite the synagogue rejection in the story, the message got through to someone. Despite all those who reject it, it does get through. It finds fertile soil, even in some of those initially on the outside, initially blind and deaf to it. And I would say that that is good news for many of us who are privileged and educated. We have a role to play. We aren't like Jesus and his disciples. We are not poor, and we have not been denied a formal education. We are not living under the brutal occupation of a foreign empire. In fact, for those of us in the United States, we are citizens of the empire living in the belly of the beast but there is still a role for us in the movement we can use what we have been given the skills that we have been privileged to develop to help tell a story that lifts up people without the same privilege and the same skills a story about people who are wiser than we are and who know things that we cannot know that my friends, is good news for us.
0: This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.